All right, good afternoon. Still good afternoon? Yeah, good afternoon. Good to see so many of you all here for this uh, seminar on becoming a culturally intelligent pastor and, and leader. And let me just share with you that um, we probably likely, I always smile when I say this, we likely probably will not take the full um, the full time. This is generated to just be uh, more of a few um, you know, kind of principles that you know, for me have been really great in terms of becoming a culturally intelligent pastor. I'll define what that means or a leader. I'll define what that means as we move along. But it's also a time for you to um, actually, uh, like, like my job here is not so much to um, tell you how to be one as much as just how you, how you would think, you know, to be a culturally intelligent uh, person or pastor or leader. And so the persons that you're sitting by, you know, we have a couple of exercises as well um, that you might be able to kind of engage in dialogue with one another um, as well. And then we'll have some Q&A Q um, at the end as well. We have a couple of runners in here as well to be able to do that in terms of becoming a culturally intelligent um, pastor and so or leader in that sense. So let me just... Um, They've given me a clicker here. Let's see if we can make this roll. Okay, just a little bit about me. Um, again, my name is Charles Montgomery, and I serve as something in the Vineyard USA called a the Association Strategic Coordinator. And basically what that means in that sense is that um, what I try to do is coordinate the um, traditionally underrepresented groups in Vineyard USA, and so I have some of my um, leaders there. I have um, right next to me is uh, Ruben Quintero. He is our um, Hispanic Association leader. Um, next to him is uh, Melanie Forsyth Lee. Uh, she's a pastor in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Ruben is a pastor in um, uh, right on the border of California and uh, Mexico. But um, um, Melanie is a uh, the Women's Association uh, leader, she's a pastor in Columbus, Ohio. And next to her is uh, Gino Olison. Uh, he is a pastor um, in the Chicagoland area in Chicago, Illinois. He leads our Black Pastors and Leaders Association. Um, and then there is Dennis Liu, uh, who's over in the Los Angeles, California area. And so he leads our Asian American and Pacific Islander um, Association. And so what I'm asked to do, what I'm... Um, tasked to do is to do kind of two things. One is to um, kind of curate communities um, where um, these traditionally represented groups um, can find leadership and hospitality and mentoring. Um, and then the second charge in that sense is to be able to create spaces where those voices um, of those traditionally underrepresented groups are, are heard. So I've been in this um, position for um, about a year and a half or so. And so I do that in my other life. I also serve as a teaching pastor. Some of you all heard at um, a church called Vineyard Columbus, uh, the founding pastor. Some of you all know is Rich Nathan. And it's a church um, right now that has 46% um, uh, people of color um, in the church. And we have um, roughly about, uh, last count was about 125, 126 countries that are involved. And so, you know, being able to figure out, you know, how we, um, live kingdom in a setting like that 
is uh, certainly a challenge. And so by no means do I come to you as, uh, as an expert as much as it's more so. These are some of the principles more so that we try to look at. And when I want to say that is because oftentimes when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven on high, a lot of times, especially in the vineyard, we say things like, yes, we want to uh, reflect um, the diversity of the kingdom, but oftentimes, how do we actually navigate that? Now, how do we deal with the cultural um, and ethnic differences that we do um, with that? And so these are kind of some of the things that we try to do. And of course, many people try to do this across the world um, in that sense. And by no means, again, are we experts um, on that. But one of the things that uh, we try to do um, in that sense is because we are people of faith, because we are, um, we strive to be kingdom citizens, we want to make sure that we have a, a biblical, uh, a biblical narrative. We want to root this in the Bible. It separates um, those of us as kingdom citizens, as practicing Christians from the rest of the world. And so I just want to begin just with a few things in terms of, again, this journey to be a culturally intelligent uh, pastor or leader. And so I want to begin with what's called a theology of multi-ethnicity, a theology of multi-ethnicity. And none of this in that sense is rocket science in that sense. But again, these are just some general principles because we believe that um, it does take a biblical foundation if we want to truthfully um, do this. And so the first principle is this, that God, you know, has a heart for the nations, that God has a heart for the nations um, and then we try to give some biblical examples in terms of the Old Testament and New Testament. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, we believe it's a precise theology that we, um, that we want to have in relationship to a theology of ethnicity. Um, and the fact we want to talk about how culture matters, and then I want to talk a little bit about intercultural exploration. But a lot of this is, or all of this is rooted in, in the Bible, in, in the Word of God. And so, again, God having a heart for, for the nations. Again, just a few um, scriptures just to walk you through that. Uh, Genesis 1:28, God blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and increase in number. We heard a little bit about that in um, one of the talks earlier today about being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and um, every other living creature that moves on, on the ground. This sets for something um, that's called um, the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate that when God is telling um, Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, the cultural mandate in that sense means that as we move across the earth, as, a, as humankind moves across the globe when it comes to the cultural mandate, there's going to be, you know, by default, different cultures different ways of doing life. There's going to be um, potentially different, you know, ethnicities that this is a, that the diversity in and of itself is a part of the, well, well, it, well actually starts and is rooted in, in the mind of God. Again, this is just a theology of multi-ethnicity. Again, God having a heart for the nations. Um, again, the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country, you know, your people, um, and um, your father's household and this land, I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who, who curse you, um, and, and so on. And so again, um, we're again just really establishing the fact that God has a heart for the nations. You know, Isaiah 2 
in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And again, here it is. All nations will stream to it. So again, just in the Bible, just establishing from a theology of multi-ethnicity that God has a heart for the nations. Um, again, the law will go out of Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge. There it is again between the nations in that sense. So this is, again, God has a heart for the nations. Just kind of walking through the Old Testament, Zechariah 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go. And wants to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. Um, yeah. And again, just establishing that God has a heart, you know, for, for the nations. Again, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, again, things that you know in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and teach all, what? Nations. You know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, God has come to tear down. Jesus says, I'm going to tear down dividing walls. You know, Galatians uh, 3, 28. Who knows what that says? I told you I don't do a monologue. I do a, guy, I do a dialogue. Anybody know what Galatians 3, 28 says? In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Y'all know that one? Yeah, in that sense. Again, this is just, God has a heart, you know, for, um, for the nations. Revelation 7 and 9. I know somebody knows that one. Revelation 7 and 9. Speak up, speak up. Yeah, John the Revelator, he looks up into heaven. And John says, when I see heaven, I see, you know, every tribe, every nation, this is Revelation 7 and 9, all the way throughout, throughout the Bible. In that sense, it talks about God having a heart for, um, God having a heart for the nation. Anybody can give me a, um, just another scripture in terms of bonus, since I have all of these theologians and leaders and pastors out here. Matthew 20, the great, great, great commission. We talked about that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it, that's not up here. That's not up here then. That's not okay. Anything about God having a heart, you know, for the nations. Acts, Acts 17, which says, amen, amen. Acts 17, anybody else? Say it one more time. John 3, 16. Wait a minute, for God so loved the world, God gave me. Anybody else? Okay, we time for one more. Anything else about God having a heart for the nations? Revelation 5, 9, which says, you can paraphrase it. Okay, every try. Oh, well, I think that's 7, 9, but yeah, 5, 9. It might, it might be 7 and 9. It might be 5, 9 as well. Somebody can check that. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. So again, just try. Yes, ma'am. Acts 2. Exactly. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, you know, coming. Amen. So again, just trying to push your mind. What I want to suggest right here is that anytime you're talking about diversity, anytime we're talking about this whole notion of becoming culturally intelligent, it's very important, particularly for those of, those of us who are pastors and leaders um, in that sense, that we, you know, have a theology that you can begin to look and show someone 
in the word of God. You know, how diversity in and of itself, you know, happens to start in the mind of God. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a great tool to have. And again, just a few things, you know, Christ envisions it. John 17, 20 through 23, I pray that they might be one, Lord, as you and I are, are one to the world, might believe. Luke describes it um, in Acts 11. Acts 11 talks about Antioch. At Antioch, you know, as a church, they are first called Christians. And when you look, you know, at Acts 11, you know, in particular, you know, it talks more so, you know, about um, the diversity in the leadership, um, they were in Acts 11, and you can even go back to Acts 6, you know, when you have the um, dispute between um, the widows um, in Acts 6, and you begin to see the different things that they do, that, that, the, that the early church does in, in Acts 6, and really because some of, the, some of the things that they do in Acts 6, particularly between the food distribution um, in that sense, and it leads to a diversity of leaders in that sense, and you begin to start connecting Acts 6 to Acts 11. That doesn't happen without a move of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come without intentionality of not just looking at not just looking at people, but looking at systems and how our systems are designed sometimes to um, elevate one ethnicity um, over over the other, and how the church actually deals with that. And when the church deals with that in Acts 6, if you remember the story, it says that there were other people who were outside the church looking at how the church is actually dealing with, dealing with matters of diversity. And so what begins to happen in that sense is you trace Acts 6 to Acts 11, and you get to Acts 11 and Acts 11, and that sense is they are first called, this is the place where they are first called Christians. That people, when they look at the church, no one in particular. They, they, they look at a number of things. They look at our theology, but we look at how we work out our theology, our kingdom theology in particular, and how our diversity reflects the kingdom. They see that there's something that's different, you know, about us. And they say that there's something that is so attractive about them that I want to be a part of this. And the church actually multiplies. So I want to suggest even that, I want to suggest even of that self that what, it's, what it suggests is that um, that diversity in our church is actually an evangelistic, you know, type of component as well. Just that, that when people see us and our ability to actually look at how we um, connect with cultures and ethnicities and races in particular, and that's it, it has a direct effect. The world is hungry, and they look specifically at what we, um, how we handle that. And again, Paul pursues it. Paul prescribes it. Paul presses forward. If you look at, uh, if, you have, if you actually trace Paul, no one in particular, one of the things he does when he enters into a new land, a new country, the first thing he says is, where are the Jews? Where's the temple? And then he also asks, where are the Gentiles? He comes in that sense. He's pressing forward. He's pursuing it. Um, he's prescribing it. He knows that God, that he knows that this whole notion of of diversity, the mystery of the gospel in and of itself is Jews and Gentiles connecting with one another, different ethnicities connecting with, with one another. So again, it's just kind of giving you just an idea that this whole notion of diversity, this theology of multi-ethnicity, you know, what happens in, in the mind of God. Where am I going with this? Well, from working across borders to bridging cultures at home, and from differing working styles to bridging generations, here's where I want to go. Culture matters. Culture matters. Again, these are just the different things as well. I'm just setting up a whole notion for 
um, for culture and cultural intelligence. Oftentimes, when you come into this whole notion of cultural intelligence, there's a number of things that oftentimes set barriers in terms of us being able to connect with cultures and connect with one another. Some of it is mutual distrust. Mutual distrust, that was, that's what we found. And that's what we found, particularly at Vineyard Columbus, you had people that, um, that just didn't trust one another. That there are certain narratives in particular, even that I grew up with, that, um, that, that I remember my grandmother, my great-grandparents teaching me about other cultures. Well, don't trust these people. These people have a particular agenda. There's something else that's called the, um, the narrative of racial, um, racial indifference. I'm sorry, the narrative of racial difference um, that talks about one culture, in particular the white culture, um, in that sense, is better than non-white cultures. The narrative of racial difference. There's a lot of these different things. There are systems in our world in that sense, that create these whole notions of mutual distrust. Confronting conflict, confronting conflict. How do we actually approach, um, how do we approach situations and how do we, you know, actually deal with conflict with, with one another? I, I remember, for example, growing up in, in my household in terms of conflict. I come from, I'll talk about this later on. I came from a very hierarchical type of household. So whatever my dad said, you know, whatever my mom said, and that, that it just went in the household. And there was not this whole notion of challenge. But then when I would get into other settings with other cultures in particular, there was this dialogue that would happen. There would be this question, why? You know, why should you do this? Or why, or why is it this way? And that just wasn't something in my household. And so, you know, being able to connect in that sense, with a number of different cultures and people that are used to dialoguing, people who are used to, uh, you know, approaching conflict in a certain way versus saying, I wasn't raised that way. It was very combustible in that sense. Feeling valued. How are you valued? You know, some people are valued by words. Some people are valued by actions. These are just different things. I'm telling you something. Again, this is not rocket science, but it's something that we need to name. And then communication barriers communication barriers in terms of how we, how we communicate. I just dealt with it the other day. In that sense, I um, worked with um, my particular supervisor that really, for the most part, um, when it comes to communication, I love something called Microsoft Teams. And they just roll on Microsoft Teams. They just want to do everything across Microsoft Teams. They want to make sure it's documented and things like that. But for me, I'm the type of person, I'm a verbal processor. And so I want to make sure that I'm in conversation. I want to get in the room. You know, I want to read a person's tone. I want to look at their, I want to look at their body language. I want to make sure that I'm understood in that sense. But the person who happened to be my supervisor who was from another culture, another upbringing, in that sense, said, no, I'm just, I'm not being mean. I'm just wanting to just lay it all out so that I can get everything out, and then we can dialogue about it. And so we had situations where that just was not relevant or I should say uh, specific to us, but we had situations where all of a sudden you had people that were going home and um, just stewing and just the enemy was getting involved in terms of this person is trying to document everything that we're saying. And so I don't, I don't trust what's going on. I think they're setting me up to be fired and things like that. And he would come back and say, no, that's not that. And you would get people in the room, you know, to begin to start talking about these different dynamics. Does any, does any of this make sense? And of itself. So again, these are just some things that we're naming 
you know, when it comes to um, connecting with different cultures. Here's what I'm trying to birth in your spirit. Because of all of this, cultural intelligence is needed. I'm going to define it in a second, but cultural intelligence is, is, is needed. And so, you know, the interesting thing is that there's a research question. I'm going to nerd out just a little bit, just for a moment. But the difference between individuals, what's the difference between individuals and organizations that, that succeed in today's globalized, multicultural world and those that fail? This is just across the board. It doesn't matter if it's in, if it's in churches, if it's in um, secular businesses or whatever. There is a difference between individuals and organizations that succeed in a multicultural world and those that fail. And that difference is cultural intelligence. This is what it is. Cultural intelligence, CQ. It is your ability to function and relate effectively in culturally diverse situations. Let me say that again. It's your capability to function and relate effectively in culturally diverse situations. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what we've discovered um, in that sense is that it's the, it's, it, it happens to be something that you can measure. You know, just like IQ or just like somebody's EQ, your cultural intelligence is actually something you can measure. It's something that you can actually improve upon in that sense. And oftentimes it's just something, it's kind of like a missing ingredient, you know, in churches. Let me just say a couple of things in terms of culture and what I just mean by culture. I want to make sure we're coming from the same page. But just culture, culture defined. When I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about a shared pattern of beliefs, values, assumptions, and behaviors that distinguish one group from another. So let's bring this closer to home when it comes to Vineyard. When I came into Vineyard, I, didn't, I wasn't raised in Vineyard. I was raised um, in um, historical um, Baptist church. We were called in the USA the National Baptist Convention. It was a historical um, African-American um, church in that sense. And when I came to Vineyard, y'all, I was tripping because they had this thing called the Vineyard Way. And I said, what do you mean by, by the Vineyard Way? And so it would be things like, well, when we pray, we keep our eyes open. And we would look at people. I said, well, what do you mean by you keeping your eye? I mean, fine if you want to keep your eye. But it was a little spooky to me, you know, that I would be praying. Someone would be praying for me, and I would open my eyes, and they were staring at me. This is the, you know, the vineyard way. Oh, when it comes to worship, when it comes to worship, a real big thing that we're working with when it comes to you know, cultural intelligence and connecting with different cultures. I dealt with it the other day. It was, uh, I was uh, consulting with a church, and they said, well, Charles, um, in our vineyard songs, in our vineyard canon, we sing, let me get this right, we sing to God. We don't sing about God. And I would say, okay. And so we're having trouble because we brought in um, a um, African-American uh, pastor, and they want to sing certain songs. They want to introduce certain songs to the canon. For us, you know, we have a resistance to that because their songs are about God, and we want to sing to God. It's just the vineyard way. This is what this particular church that you're running nameless was telling me, a pretty prominent church, and I said, okay, 
Um, well, what do you do with amazing grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but not. I see one of the great hymns of the Big C Church. Um, are you singing that to God, or is it something about God and about the grace of God? Oh, yeah. Oh, but all of a sudden, when we were able to put it that way, the light bulb, the penny dropped. And we began to start to discuss, well, what does this mean in terms of the vineyard way versus another culture that comes in as we try to be more, uh, more diverse and try to uh, reach the globe in that sense? And there are certain songs that might bring someone behind the veil, you know, to connect with the God of our salvation. These are some of the real issues, you know, that we, that we work with all the time. Let me move forward. When it comes to culture, you know, that's what I was getting to with the Vineyard Way. We're talking about what is, what's accepted and what's familiar. When it comes to culture, if culture is a way of life, there are certain things with folk, and they're just acceptable to certain cultures, and they're familiar with other cultures. And when you come into it, when you come into contact with another culture that has acceptance and familiarity on something different, you create tension. And there's different bridges that need to be, that need to be, um, that need to happen. Different bridges need to happen. So um, I've talked quite a bit, but what I want to do is I want to um, bring up um, somebody on video. His name is Richard uh, Pellegrino, and this is an old TED Talks, uh, TED, TEDx talk, and it speaks a little bit about um, culture and um, acceptance and familiarity. So. I'm going to play that just it's going to be about a three-minute video or so, but it helps us to kind of delve a little bit more in, sort of in terms of this culture, this culture of acceptance and familiarity. So let's see if this works. Make sure our sound is on. Ready to roll. Okay. What was amazing with this is we're looking at the same pictures and we're using completely different words to describe it. And this is the challenge of working across borders. We've got different ideas of accepted and familiar. Here's what's accepted and familiar to me when I queue. I was raised in the UK. We are the world champions of queuing waiting in line. And you know, aren't we? We're fantastic, yeah? You know, in, if you're waiting in line in the supermarket in the UK, let's say there are 10 people waiting in line. And we're all getting a bit impatient, you know, because we're all waiting in line. And then they open a new cash register. Do you know what will happen in the UK? The first four people, they won't move. They'll stay in the queue. The next six people will move to the next cash register in more or less the same order. And they kind of check with each other. And if they open another cash register, the same will happen. It's like a formation dance. It's fantastic, yeah? Would the same happen in Norway? No. What would happen if they shout out in Norwegian, it's Lady Kassa, which is an available cash register? What happens? Everybody goes for it. It's first come, first served. Isn't that, isn't that what's accepted and familiar? Now, the first time that happened to me, I was shocked. And I said some not very nice things about Norwegians. But, you know, it's, it's, you've got to dig a bit deeper to find out why do Norwegians do that? Why are they running for that cash register? Why is it a free-for-all and first come served? I think it's got to do with this. What, they say? This is the king of Norway on a train in 1973, that guy in the cap on the right. This is equality. And I think the queuing system in Norway is all about equality. First come, first served is about equality. And it's the ability to dig under the surface and find out what the underlying values are. That's how you know how to communicate with people. And this thing with equality is really important in Norway. It's the reason we're so laid back with each other. We don't bother with titles. We dress casually. 
it makes a fantastic business environment, actually, doesn't it? But sometimes this can take you a little bit by surprise. And in those situations where you feel uncomfortable or irritated, we have a tendency to jump to the negative conclusions rather than the positive conclusions, you know? And I mean, I travel all over the world, uh, and I know you're not supposed to, um, this isn't an advertisement for the airlines, but it's Scandinavian Airlines, and it's Lufthansa, and it's Singapore Airlines, and everybody knows that Singapore Airlines has the best service. Why? Because they have a whole lot more hierarchy in their societies. And therefore, when they serve you, they serve you. And Singapore Airlines staff, I don't know if you've ever been on the Singapore Airlines flight, but you just, just from the moment they welcome you, they look like they're going to serve you, don't they? I mean, it's just the body language. It's like anything for you, sir. Now, if the Scandinavian Airlines person did this when you came on, yeah, exactly, you would get suspicious, wouldn't you? What's going on? Because it's not accepted or familiar. That's it, you know? This is what it's all about. So this is how we do it. And look at the space. Space is important. Nobody's touching. And if you go to somewhere like Finland, that space becomes even more. Can you see it? Look at it. It's fantastic. And look at the way they queue in France. There's nothing like the way I'm used to queuing. And it's different every day. It's never the same. And in some cultures, you need a bit more motivation to stand in line. And this is my favorite one. This is fantastic. Look at this. Huh? Isn't that great? All right. So again, you kind of get the idea of what's acceptable and what's familiar. We'll come back to that possibly in and Q&A, but let me bring it a little bit closer to home. What's accepted and, and what's familiar? It might come up in um, how, we, how we conduct our meetings. You know, whether it's important, you know, whether you speak up or you don't. How many of you all have been, you know, in meetings with different cultures and there's people that are just, you know, external processors and all of a sudden they'll just keep going and going or they'll just kind of jump right in you know, all the time. And then you'll have other people that wait to be called upon. And so we're in the setting, if you will, particularly in Vineyard Columbus, in Vineyard USA, and I'm sure this over here in certain, certain dynamics as well, in which we will have people in particular meetings and um, because, of their, because they're of a different culture in that sense, because they're not speaking up, then all of a sudden there begins to be this narrative that's formed that maybe, just maybe, they're not leaders. Or maybe they're not into it. Or maybe they're not the person that's going to be able to plan a church, or they're not going to be the person that's going to be able to lead a department in particular. But if you call on them when they're waiting to be recognized, and in that sense, you might actually be surprised again. But it comes down to just things like accepted and and familiar. So um, I see we have a pretty good crowd here. What I want to do um, in particular, when it comes to um, your vineyard church or your setting, or I'm going to say your vineyard church in that sense, when it comes to that. I want to ask you, if you can kind of turn to your neighbor and say, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate, and I said vineyard's effectiveness, but I want to just say the church setting that you're in, um, how would you rate its effectiveness in terms of working across cultures? We can just take a moment and just kind of turn, it might, it might be the next to the neighbor, it might be three or four people, in that sense, how would you rate it, one being ineffective and 10 being effective? So just take a few minutes to, to do that just kind of discussing with one another, how would you rate your church, and why? How would you rate it?
give you about 90 more seconds. About 30 more seconds. Right. Very good. Very good. Very good. Some people are looking at me. Some people need 30 more seconds. Okay. There's grace in the house. All right, there we go. Again, just wanted to get you kind of talking with one another about your settings, about your settings in terms of the accepted and, and familiar. So the next thing we're going to do is we're going to look um, at what are some useful markers when it comes to cultural intelligence. We've been talking about some things from a um, ethereal, esoteric point of view. What I want to do um, in this next part is just kind of drop down um, a little bit more in terms of what are some of the different ways in which we can notice, you know, how um, cultural barriers or cultural differences exist within the settings that we're in. And so I'm going to be talking about um, what's something about that's called cultural values. And many of you all might be familiar um, with these because it's used in a number of different um, settings in terms of um, in terms of cultural training in that sense. But I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, about those different cultural differences. And to do that, I'm going to show you just another um, quick video. Um, Dr. Sheena is um, at Columbia University, and she has a very um, interesting and somewhat humorous, you know, type of uh, presentation. She's going to talk just for a minute, about 90 seconds, about her interactions when it comes to um, when it comes to what what would happen to her when she hit a restaurant. And then after that, we're going to make a, we're going to have another discussion. So let's listen to Dr. Sheena at this point. research 15 years ago. I knew even then that I would encounter cultural differences and misunderstandings, but they popped up when I least expected it. On my first day, 
I went to a restaurant and I ordered a cup of green tea with sugar. After a pause, the waiter said, one does not put sugar in green tea. I know, I said, I'm aware of this custom, but I really like my tea sweet. In response, he gave me an even more courteous version of the same explanation. One does not put sugar in green tea. I understand, I said, that the Japanese do not put sugar in their green tea, but I'd like to put some sugar in my green tea. <laughs> Surprised by my insistence, the waiter had to, took up the issue with the manager. Pretty soon, a lengthy discussion ensued, and finally the manager came over to me and said, I am very sorry, we do not have sugar. <laughs> well, since I couldn't have my tea the way I wanted it, I ordered a cup of coffee, which the waiter brought, brought over promptly. All right, so just remember what she said, and I'm going to ask you to go back to your groups. I simply want to ask you to discuss one question based on what you heard. What might explain the cultural differences Sheena encounters? All right, what might explain the cultural differences that Sheena encounters? I'll give you about three to five minutes to kind of discuss that. All right, all right. So you got just a little bit of a precursor. Got a little bit of a precursor. You're going to be, going to be talking about Sheena and the Sheena more in a second. We talk about her more in a second. But just a few things. I just want to talk a little bit about a few principles. Then we're going to get on over to 
a little bit of uh, Q&A because I want to be respectful of the time. But again, I talked about the cultural values and what are some of the markers, you know, in that sense, in terms of understanding differences between cultures. I won't go through all of these um, in that sense, but um, these are just a few um, that are actually here. And I want to just probably go through about three, and we're going to probably discuss three of them uh, when it comes to Sheena in this particular situation, just to kind of get your uh, mind thinking in this particular direction. And then we will um, um, break, then we'll go to Q&A. But just a few things I just want to kind of introduce you to um, with that. One is something called individualism and collectivism. All right, so individualism in that sense. Individualism is the extent to which you think of yourself primarily as an individual versus primarily as a member of a specific group. All right, so let me say that again. Individualism in that sense is where you think of yourself primarily as an individual versus a primarily as a member of a of a, of, a, of, a, of a particular group, the U.S. and well, in, in uh, U.K. Um, and Europe, in that sense, it, many many parts of Europe, you know, are considered individualist type. We we think about I I I, you know, versus someone like China or in some places in sub-Saharan Africa, in general, might think about we we we. And so, if you're looking at individualism versus collectivism, I want to give you like we're going to go through like three of these. I want to give you like one minute each to think about one minute on each of these um, components, if you will. When you think about individualism versus collectivism, where did you see individualism in China's talk versus collectivism? Does that make sense? Where did you where did you see individualism as well as collectivism? Go back to your neighbor and just kind of talk briefly about that. I'm going to give you like one minute on each of these. Okay, so here we go. Hopefully some of the things went this way. Sheena is coming from an individual's perspective. The customer's always right. I want my tea. I want sugar in my tea, all right? Restaurants coming back from a collectivist standpoint because in this particular case, the Japanese have already described and that's, or have already decided what tea looks like or what tea tastes like. So you have an individual versus a collectivist mindset. Now, think about that in your churches. Think about when you might come across a different, or people that you might, or even outside of your church, people that you want to reach outside of the church. You know, we have a tendency sometimes in a culture to talk about things from an individual perspective versus a collectivist perspective. Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. We talked about planting churches. And I don't know what it's like over here, but I can give you just a testimony of what it's been like back at home for me. Oftentimes, we will have church planters that will go into areas that, um, that there's not a particular church that's part of the vineyard. 
And so we'll move into a community as if we're going to save this community. A church needs to be in this community. And we ignore the reality that there are people that are there that are indigenous in that community that perhaps we could partner with or perhaps we could resource to do some major, make some major wins for the kingdom. But because I'm looking at it from an individualist perspective, we've got to go over here and we've got to save these people versus being able to say, well, you know what? Um, This community, this neighborhood, you know, has a certain identity. So what does it mean for me and for us to form relationship with them? To really discover the, the real needs and how they do things in that neighborhood. Remember what Paul said. Paul always said, where are the Jews and where are the Gentiles? He spends time, you know, in that community, and he works with people in that community and oftentimes empowers people in that community or partners with people in that community, and that's how the church gets planted. So again, not saying that one thing is right or wrong, but just trying to, again, make us think when it comes to individualism versus collectivism, particularly when it comes to being culturally intelligent in terms of maybe multiplying churches, which is what, um, which is what John was talking about earlier. So it's just, again, talking about individualism versus collectivism. Let's go to the second one, power distance. Power distance. This is a really big thing in terms of power distance. Power distance is the extent to which you prefer a more flat, egalitarian approach to leadership, low power distance, versus a more top-down, hierarchical leadership style, a high power distance. All right? So low power distance, high power distance. Really quickly, again, go back to your neighbor. Where did you see lower power distance and higher power distance in what Sheena's talk? Where'd you see lower and higher? If at all. Okay, I'll push the conversation along. Perhaps one of the things to point out in that, in that sense, is that when Sheena asks for um, sugar in her tea, the waiter actually goes to somebody else to see if it's okay. That's the idea of high power distance versus low power distance. Low power distance in that sense, okay, I can go ahead and get your tea. High power distance, you know, in the sense that, you know what? Um, I need to go check with an authority to make sure it's okay, you know, to be able to do that in the first place. So low power distance versus high power, that's pretty clear. Last one, uncertainty avoidance versus low certainty avoidance versus high certainty avoidance. Low certainty avoidance versus high certainty avoidance. Uncertainty avoidance is the extent 
to what you prefer to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances versus reducing and avoiding um, uncertainty, high uncertainty avoidance. So anyway, um, just, just, just take about 30 seconds. Anywhere where you saw low certainty avoidance versus high power, I'm sorry, high certainty avoidance in that video right there. Again, let me read it to you again. Uncertainty avoidance is the extent to which you prefer to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. That's what, that's what uncertainty avoidance is, the extent to which you prefer to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances versus reducing and avoiding uncertainty. So where did you see that in the video? Where did you see that in the video? People look at me uncertain. They don't know. Okay, really quickly, Sheena has brought up in North America where the dominant culture takes a low certainty avoidance approach, particularly in things like ordering your food. Even if the server thinks that your order, what you're ordering sounds disgusting, it makes no difference to them if that's what you want. Versus in Japan, one of the highest certainty avoidance cultures in the world, and that shows up in the restaurant, and they seem perplexed of how to handle, how to consider such a bizarre request. I'm pointing these out just because some of the things, what I try to do with people, I try to do with organizations, I try to ask them a few things. We kind of define a number of these different things. We don't have time to, to go through all of them. But we basically look at how do you mark yourselves when it comes to are you more individualist or are you more collective? And then what we do is we begin to start working with our teams and we begin to start asking them, where are you at? How is your group similar? Or how is your department similar? How is your church similar? How are your church staffs? How are your church staff similar or different? And what are some of the potential challenges and, and opportunities? Again, this is called cultural value mapping. It's something you can really Google and you can look up. I want to encourage you, those of you who are interested in being more culturally intelligent and those type of things, it's really a great type of piece um, to be able to do and begin to start to rate yourselves and see the differences in your. Um, in your church. This is what they reveal. Um, your general orientation, your life, work, ministry, and relationships, any potential biases that you have towards different cultural values or different groups, but they do not predict your ability to work effectively across cultures. What we try to do when it comes to um, um, our cultural values is we try to say, based on where you're at, how are you connected to or how do you relate to um, the 10 largest cultural groupings in, in the world? Here's an example. Um, we basically say, for example, when it comes to your orientation, we say things like, if you're an individualism, we, th these are not 
we understand that every group is not monolithic, but based on um, 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 hundreds of hundreds of research that we've done um, with a group I work with, the Cultural Intelligence Center, this is kind of where a lot of the groups, in that sense, tend to gravitate for. Tend, tend to gravitate towards individualism, uh, Anglo-Germanic uh, Europe, Nordic Europe um, versus collectivism, um, emphasis on group goals, um, Arab, um, Latin America, Southern Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. And again, we understand that every group is not monolithic at the same time. But if you happen to find yourself um, trying to reach to different people groups, or you have different people that are in your on your staff and those type of things, if you will. It's just something to kind of keep in mind, particularly in terms of how you would rate yourself, you know, versus where some of these people groups from a research standpoint happen to be. And so it's just a really great type of tool to be able to keep in mind. So uh, I'm going to end with a couple things before we go to um, some questions and answers. Um, one, how do I develop my cultural intelligence? in that sense, um, and then I want to talk about something called intercultural competence. These are a couple of things we're doing right now over in the U.S. Again, your cultural intelligence measures your, your CQ, your CQ, your cultural intelligence, if you will. And not only does it do, not only does it do that, but it also, it also um, provides a plan for you. So basically, in that sense, it's really about a 20-minute um, test that you take in that sense, and you come back with what your cultural intelligence happens to be. And so it measures a few things. It, measure, it mentions, for example, it measures your drive, your level of interest and persistence and confidence during multicultural interactions. And basically what that means in that sense is that some of us um, are interested, some of us just aren't interested in this stuff. The fact that you're here today, hope you have some, you have some general interest in this, but we have measured your CQ drive. It mentions, it, it actually measures your knowledge, your understanding about how cultures are similar and different. Uh, and then what happens is we try to give you a strategy in terms of or your ability, to, I'm sorry, your, your strategic um, aptitude, your awareness and ability to plan for multicultural interactions. It measures that. And then we try to give you an action plan, your ability to adapt when relating to working in multicultural context. So what this basically does is it measures three or four different areas, you know, for you in that sense when it comes to your ability to develop cultural intelligence as a leader, um, as a pastor. And what you do is you kind of get a grid, you know, somewhat of where you might be, where you might perceive yourself to be versus where you might actually be according to the research. In that sense, and then you actually get a particular plan in terms of how you would develop your cultural intelligence. Make sense? So that's one piece. And then the second piece we, we were recently working on is something you may have heard of that's called the um, intercultural um, development continuum. And again, intercultural competence is very similar to cultural intelligence, but it's your capability to shift your perspective and adapt your behavior to cultural differences and commonality. It's something that's um, an organization I'm working with called the IDI. And it's something that our friends over the Evangelical Covenant Church you know happen to be using right now. Um, the Evangelical Covenant Church, many of you all know, started off as a predominantly Swedish um, organization. And it is, um, I believe, the leading um, evangelical organization in terms of measuring how they moved from a monolithic type of organization, a monocultural, I'm sorry, a monocultural organization more so to a multicultural denomination. By multicultural denomination, in that sense, they're able to be able to trace, in that sense, wow, where 
of their churches and leaders um, are people of color. So they've been able to do that. And so one of the things that they've done in terms of doing that is they've implemented this thing that's called IDI, you know, where they've measured their intercultural competence, your capability to shift your perspective and adapt your behavior to cultural difference. So in other words, you start to know where your culture is and in your way of life. And when you come into contact with different with other cultures that um, are different from yours, how do you identify the differences? And then how do I shift, how do I adapt my behavior in order to create an inclusive environment? Now, how do you do that? They do it through a three or four thing, this intercultural development continuum, and I'll end with this. We'll go to some Q&A. But there's really five different areas when it comes to that. Um, very similar to cultural intelligence, but we're finding, and as we're doing this in the USA right now with our different churches, if you will, um, there are five areas. There's one, this, this denial, and that's basically people that say, again, I don't care. That's the whole Acadia in that sense that I talked about when I preached about earlier. The Acadia, you're, you're, you're just, you just deny that, hey, I don't, I don't care. This, this is not even the starter for me. And that's and some people um, that um, take the IDI, again, it's another 15 or 20-minute test that we um, give people. They just place right there. They just don't care. It's not a starter for them. No, the other place is polarization, polarization. And that's when you actually say, okay, yes, but I'm over here and they're over there. No, it's a us versus them. No, that's a polarization, a minimization in that sense, that, that level in that sense kind of talks about, well, you know, kumbaya, let's just all get along. You know, we all are Jesus people in that sense. And as long as you just believe in Jesus, you know, this stuff really doesn't matter, you know, in that sense. Let's just all um, love Jesus. Let's continue. Let, let, let's, let's focus on our vertical relationship with God and not so much a horizontal relationship with one another. That's minimization. Acceptance in that sense is when you move to a point where you're saying, okay, I think that there's some, um, there's some differences here and um, I want to acknowledge that, and that's something I need to work on. And your adaptation in that sense is when you're highly cultural intelligent, you're able um, to understand your culture versus other cultures and able to shift. Each one of these um, ha along the continuum happen to be a category that, you know, all of us would find ourselves in. And the cool thing about IDI, just like cultural intelligence, is that you can come out with a plan in that sense to be able to say, I want to move, if I place, for example, in minimization, where I just say, and you're sitting here today, and you say, well, yeah, well, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, and God will work it out, in that sense. But you know what? That's not going to move the needle. I want to move from minimization to adaptation. We actually um, um, give you a particular plan by which you actually work on, and it's, it's about an average of about 30 hours, you know, towards working, you know, on your cultural intelligence, on your intercultural competence. And we've actually began to show statistically, you know, where people have moved sometimes one and two categories. So what we're planning to do in that sense is we're taking all of our uh, national team, all of our regional leaders, and then uh, this year all of our national team and regional leaders through it, is trying to map where we fit, you know, in these particular categories. And we're actually putting people on a plan 
in and of itself so that by six months from now, a year from now, we'll see if there happens to be any type of measurement, uh, and I'm sorry, any type of advancement from one category to another. So it's just some of the things that we're working on in the U.S. We find that we found the Evangelical Covenant Church is doing it. Some of the things we're trying to do in Vineyard USA as well. So that's pretty much my presentation. Any questions or concerns, criticisms, observations? Not necessarily in that order. I've got um, some runners here um, with the mics and if I don't know it, I don't know it in that sense, but it really is a journey that we happen to be on at this point. I see a couple of people over here. Yep. And this is about a 15 minutes or so for questions or answers. Go ahead. I, uh, it's probably another uh, dynamic, but what about Zoomers versus Boomers? Because there is a massive culture shift between those uh, you know, age groups. Is that, is, is that another dynamic? It can be. It can be, but what we've actually, you know, discovered in and of itself is, again, because none of, because none of these groups happen to be monolithic <laughs> in that sense. It depends on exactly, you know, what your, what your experience, you know, has been in terms of how you're raised. So we have not seen a statistically significant piece in terms of our boomers versus our Gen Xers versus our um, um, Gen Yers and so forth and so on. We have, not seen a we have not seen that. It's probably something we probably need to go back and look at in particular. Um, there's a situation right now in the U.S. that we're dealing with. There happened to be a 16-year-old um, African-American um, 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 young person that... Um, was going to um, pick up his younger brother or younger sister. And, that's a, and so um, he shows up at the wrong address. He shows up at the wrong address. Um, I think it was like, you know, what, 6921 Certain Avenue versus 6921 versus Certain Street. He shows up. There happens to be an 84-year-old um, um, Caucasian gentleman, um, sees, you know, this 16-year-old ring his doorbell, says he gets scared because of how he socialized, if you will, and he actually shoots him in the head. And it's causing persons to start looking, okay, what begins to be, you know, um, your upbringing, your biases, and those type of things. So people are starting to look at that versus generations, but we've not at this point found a statistically um, significant type of piece based off of categories like age in that sense. Um, I was wondering if you could give any kind of concrete examples of where churches have moved into that kind of adaptation, adaptable place and how they've shifted things around to become more adaptable to different cultures. Yeah, um, well, when it comes to churches doing that, again, I'm going to be focused a little bit more on ECC even then than Venue because we're Venue USA because we're at the beginning stages you know, of that, but we actually have seen um, that when leaders of churches and ECC are actually engaged in this, we begin to see um, how that works. Like, I'm thinking of a particular church um, right now over in um, Chicago, Illinois, and I can't call the church's name, for example. Um, yeah, I can't call it right now, the, the actual church's name, but um, we actually saw where um, those churches, in terms of their leadership, you know, actually began to shift and reflect more of their community. So, for example, this particular church that I'm, um, I think it's Sanctuary Covenant Church, but I could be wrong with this, but um, the Sanctuary Church, in that sense, moved into a community. They were a, they, they, they were a monolithic church. and um, Yeah, they were a monolithic church, a monocultural church in terms of their leadership. And when they actually did the IDI, 
you know, they began to start to connect with their community more, and, they, and you now begin to see, and it's kind of like five years down the road where you begin to see the leadership in that particular um, church start to reflect the demographics of the community in and of itself. But it started because they began to recognize, I believe that they started over in, pull these up so I can, they started, we had some people that started in polarization, you know, where it was like us versus them. And we couldn't understand, and they couldn't understand why um, they were dealing with white flight in their church. And so it was, all, it was always us versus them. And so they actually took this and moved from polarization to acceptance. And when they moved to the acceptance in that sense, that's when you began to see um, a change in the leadership in and of itself. But it's something that we're at the beginning stages right now of, um, and Vineyard USA of doing, but we began to see churches like that. And once you begin to start to change and become, an, uh, become aware of where you're at as a leader in and of that self, then you begin to start to develop your plan. And this church, I should say this too, it just wasn't the leaders actually taking no, the test in and of itself, they actually took it as a group and as a staff. And so they had a plan not just for their group, but also for their staff. And so one of the things the staff started to do in that sense is they began to say, well, what does it look like in terms of our small groups? They actually began to start putting small groups in the community, and they began to start recognizing, you know, leadership that was among the indigenous folk within that community. And over a period of time, we had people that rose up, you know, out of those um, indigenous groups and actually became key volunteers, staff members, and that was one of the things that we happened to see in that particular church. Hello. Uh, in the beginning, okay, all right. In the beginning, you spoke about capabilities being measurable. Can you explain what you mean by that? As capable. Say it one more time. Make sure. So, in the beginning, you spoke about capabilities being measurable. So, how would you define cap capability in this concept? Oh, capabilities being yes. measurable. Yes. So are you speaking of right here in particular? Yes, definitely. Um, in the beginning, it, you know, this, I just go back a bit. <laughs> Try to, in the beginning, God created the heavens. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to get, I just want okay. to make sure. You, men you mentioned that um, our, our cultural intelligence yes. is defined on capabilities that were oh, measurable. Okay. Yes, well, the measurability in that sense is actually in these four areas. Getting back over here. That's why that's I thought you were going. Yeah. So in those four areas, um, when you act, there's actually a test that we take, um, and the test actually measures these particular areas. And that's what cultural intelligence does. So it measures these particular areas. So you basically take an assessment and based off of the research of the Cultural Intelligence Center, you actually come up with metrics in these four areas. And so when you come up with metrics in these four areas, and so basically it's kind of a pre and post test. I wasn't clear on that. You kind of say, okay, this is where I'm at right now. You know, but based off the plan that I'm developing or my staff is developing, you know, or my church is developing in that sense, we can actually begin to measure moving along the metrics of the Cultural Intelligence Center, saying how am I moving and how am I doing in these particular areas? Does that make sense? Okay. 
see one over here. Um, I was going to ask, when cultures come to clash, to what extent should someone actually give up their own views and values and culture to come into an agreement? Yeah, that's the give it to me one more time. When cultures clash. Yes. How do you know like, which culture has to win and which one has to lose? Oh, the win versus losing. Yeah. And that says, I don't know if I'm qualified so much to answer that <laughs> particular you know, question in and of itself, but I do think that it is um, a recognition of where the uh, a recognition of where different people are coming from when it comes to conflict resolution. What you might be talking about sometimes is, you know, what's the win-win opportunity? Uh, if there's not a win-win opportunity, sometimes it does come down to, in my opinion, it does come, to, or my experience, it does come down to sometimes who the person happens to be in power at a particular situation. So you might have to, so you're talking about different categories then of conflict resolution. So sometimes it's a win-win. Sometimes it happens to be, you know, another category that's that's, that's not. Um, I can't dial it up right now in that sense, but I, I but um, I'll look it up um, for you to get my information after, and I'll send to you just kind of a list or a grid of what we do in terms of when it comes to decision-making powers, in that sense that we actually work with at Vineyard Columbus in terms of when those things happen. The first thing that we do is we begin to kind of make sure that we're understanding where different people are coming from, but we do have an agreement in terms of our metric, in terms of what we actually do, in terms of who's got a decision-making power when we come into when we come into uh, um, a difference of conflict. But I will, um, matter of fact, if you, I think I should have this up here. If you actually write to me, if you actually write to me, I will make sure that you get that, that rubric. Got time for one, maybe two more. But seriously, write to me, I will send that to you. Okay. Thank you, Charles. I just want to quickly, I'm going to ask a question, but quickly before I do that, just acknowledge that the, the awful story that you described of the 16-year-old boy, thankfully he survived yes. in that situation. But yes, he did survive that situation by, by, by God's grace. Actually, one of yeah. my, um, um, I won't say classmates, he's a little bit younger than me, and my own mother is actually representing, um, representing that, that family as well. Yes, so he did survive. Yes. Wow. Good. Um, yeah, my question was, um, by focusing on cultural differences, do you think there's a risk that we might create more division than unity? by focusing on cultural differences. Say a little bit more in terms of risk. What, what do you think the risk would be? Well, I think that there's potential that we have a lot in common and a lot we can, and this might be putting me in the minimalizing category um, of your, um, on the scale there, but it's possible that we might have more in common than we have in, not in common. Um, so we can major on that instead of majoring on what dif dif uh, makes us different or where we might struggle. But that's just maybe well, you know that that would be a classic minimization in terms of this particular category in that sense. But again, what we're talking about is when you come, the, you look at where the commonalities are at, and you acknowledge the differences. And it's really only a, it, it's really only an acknowledgement in the sense of not so much in terms of the vision, but what are the things that we need to do to be able to create more inclusive environments? No, nothing more. Nothing less than that. So just because, for example, I might be a high power distance versus low power distance or whatever you happen to be in that sense, it doesn't make anything, you know, one thing is more, one thing is better than the other as much as it's saying when I'm coming 
in the conflict and when I'm coming in the conflicting situation, because I understand where I'm coming from and you understand where you're coming from, how do we work together, you know, based off of the fact that we want to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? <laughs> you know, how do we work together to be able to make sure that what we're doing is creating a win-win opportunity? It's just kind of the strategy of doing it. So it's not so much, you know, in, at least in my opinion, um, an opportunity to make us more divided as it is more united, but it's how we're working together with some common goals that we happen to have in mind. So it's just, just a thought for me. I'll get this one. It'll be the last one, and then we'll end because I think we're at time. Yeah, thank you, Charles, for your presentation. I think it's a really important um, thing for us to wrestle with. So firstly, thank you. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the squares on the, the quadrant of um, the... Yes, this. Uh, the the bottom right hand, the CQ strategy. Um, I was before I saw that, I was going to ask a question about um, how we can be proactive um, in planning for multicultural interactions, um, because I think a lot of what we've been thinking about is maybe reactionary. So, so w what do we do when uh, when we're faced with a scenario where um, we've got different cultures coming together and, and how do we uh, build for acceptance. But um, I, I once heard in a, a podcast, I think it was Rick Warren um, speaking with Kerry Newhoff, and Rick Warren said something about um, if you want to see cultural diversity, then put people on the stage or in leadership positions that, um, uh, that, that you want to promote so that um, what makes people feel included is seeing someone who represents them. So that's one example of something proactive that, that churches can do to plan for multicultural interactions. Is there anything else that, that we can do in our own context that's proactive rather than reactive uh, so that we're already inviting the possibility for cultural acceptance uh, across diversity? Yeah, again, I'm going to, uh, because I'm out of time, I'm going to ask you to... Um, to actually, to actually write to me. I actually did a presentation about four or five years ago here um, that's talked about building a multicultural church. And so um, it talks about um, several of those things, not just putting people, you know, on stage, if you will, but how you are um, actually studying the communities <laughs> in and of themselves, how you're actually forming the relationships and you know, how you are actually um, um, being able to um, know um, the different type of music of the people that you want to connect, if you will. And I promise you, like, if you write, I will send that actual presentation to you. Okay, well, again, um, this is just something to, again, not so much tell you what to think, you know, as much as it is as how to make you think. And so, again, we just wanted to create just some principles, some things to keep in mind of what culture is. And again, so we talk about what culture is, what cultural intelligence is, you know, your ability to be able to um, interact with different multicultural um, 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 people groups in that sense. Um, we gave you just a little bit in terms of what some of those markers happen to be. And what I want you to do is I want to challenge you to begin to start thinking about in your own context in particular, um, where I am, 
versus where another culture might be and how I might begin to start developing a strategy to do that. And again, I have this up here as well in that sense because, again, we're at the beginning of stages of working with this um, in the USA, but if you have interest in terms of how can I take um, a uh, intercultural development test or a cultural intelligence test, we'll be more than happy to work with you give you your own plan um, as well as maybe your church's plan that you can begin to start developing um, your own cultural intelligence. All right. So God bless you. Thank you so much for coming.